Are you ready for good talk? there. Welcome to Fridays. Welcome to uh, Good Talk. Chantelle Bear, Bruce Anderson, Peter Mansbridge here to uh, to talk about, I guess, a number of things in terms of how the week has unfolded and what we're we're looking on the horizon, the political horizon for uh, for Canada. Um, now, as you two both know, I'm I'm often easily impressed. I mean, after all, I like I like the Leafs, so I'm, I'm oh. easily impressed. And um, but this is different. This was a, a week where what struck me involves um, a Liberal MP by the name of Lawrence McCauley. You both know him, have covered him, you've witnessed him. I mean, he first was elected in 1988, so he's been around the block a few times. He's no stranger to politics or the way it should work. Uh, he's a Liberal cabinet minister. He's the agriculture minister. He's uh, from Prince Edward Island, and he loves the island, as anybody who's ever been there would love the island. And he loves lobster, and he loves talking about lobster and its importance on the uh, foreign trade market, which it is. Canadian lobster is a huge deal. Hundreds of thousands of pounds of lobster shipped out of here every week. However, um, monitoring his social media channels this week, there's a picture of him on his Instagram account. He's in a T-shirt in a what looks like a swanky restaurant in um, Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And he's wolfing down a big plate of lobster. And he talks a little bit in, the, in, his, uh, in his post about the importance of, you know, the trade of lobster. But it just seemed to me to be tone deaf in, in terms of where we are right now uh, in the political cycle. Here he was in a swanky restaurant chomping down on lobster and putting it on his social media channel. And it left me with this question kind of lingering, because this guy's, you know, this is not an amateur in politics. He knows what was going to happen. I'm sure he knows what was going to happen. It left me with the question, have they basically given up? Have the Liberal MPs sort of said, we're 17, 20 points down the polls. Nothing's changing. It's been this way for months. There's an election in months or at most another year or so. Have they given up when you see stuff like that from a, a veteran campaigner? Um, Chantel, why don't you start? Well, uh, I spent the time in a previous life in KL. I lived there for a number of months with family. So the T-shirt thing is totally understandable for anyone who's gone to KL. It's always very, very warm, as in humid in KL. Uh, there is not a breezy day to be had, uh, even in what would pass for the winter season. Um, but I too, when I looked at it, it looked obvious to me that this is a picture that was taken by uh, or, or with the support of a lobster industry group. Uh, and lobster is important to, to PEI, and Lawrence McCauley is from PEI. I'm not sure if the liberals have given up. I'm convinced that the people who saw this and the PMO went, oh, no, uh, wh what in the world is going on? But at the very least, we are in a time when it's increasingly every MP to himself or herself. And while that picture certainly sent the wrong message to voters outside of PEI, it probably did Mr. McCauley no harm in PEI itself, where he would be seen to be fighting the good fight for a local industry. There are many times in the life of an MP, especially on the government side, where your own interests collide with the larger interests of the party. And I think the larger interests of the party at this point um, is no longer uppermost in the minds of most liberal MPs. Why that is, is because as opposed to the last three elections, but in particular 2015, Justin Trudeau is not going to be lifting all boats. It's the opposite. All boats are dragging Justin Trudeau uh, with a look to the upcoming uh, federal election. So on that basis, um, most MPs expect no help 
from the leader or the center uh, in getting reelected. And I think you will see more of those scenes that are at odds with the overall message, but probably helpful to the actual messenger on a local basis. Um, just to, to back you up on KL, I, I, I lived there for three years, you know, in the early 1950s. And I was, I was just a kid, but I do remember how hot it was and, the, you know, the huge thunder and lightning storms that would pass through. Um, on Macaulay's thing, I, I'm sure it does him no harm at home, but there are only four seats in PEI, of which he has one. Yeah, but one of them is his seat. It's his seat, right. Um, but take it beyond uh, Macaulay, uh, Bruce. It, it, there, there just seems to be a feeling settling in, and it, you know, Chantal hinted at it, on the part of a lot of MPs, that it's uh, you know it's every man or every woman for himself or herself at this point. Well, before I do that, Peter, I need to take it back to lobster because, uh, as you as you know and Chantel knows, we've had a chance to spend a lot of time together over the years and have a cottage in a similar part of uh, of Canada. And I think my kids still think of you as Grandpa Lobster because you're you're so known for your love of lobster. Um, that's so I'm what not surprised that you wanted to talk about lobster today. Uh, it's a passion of yours. So, uh, look, I think that the the picture, I, uh, first of all, I don't think the Liberals have given up. I think they're very worried about their situation. The MPs are. Uh, I'm not sure that the level of concern about their situation is consistent, uh, clear across the caucus. And sometimes it does seem that at the centre, uh, there isn't as much preoccupation with what are we going to do about this 17 or 19 point uh, gap. Um, the implication of what they're doing sometimes is if we just keep on saying the same kinds of things, but maybe do it with a little bit more vigor um, and wait for inflation to come down and maybe for interest rates to come down, that we'll end up seeing uh, this situation right itself. And, you know, add to that the idea that as people come to know more about Pierre Polyev, they'll turn away from him and turn back towards the Liberals. I think these are all um, the kind of hopes that people cling to uh, if they if they don't have uh, another alternative, another plan, another sense of energy, or or you know an idea about how to to come out of the situation they're in. And I don't think that those are safe bets. Um, but that said, I don't think that the average MP. Uh, has given up. I think a lot of MPs that I talk to are are fully engaged in thinking about how can they protect themselves from what they fear might be a wave that's coming. Um, and, but as we all know, uh, we've watched a lot of elections. When a wave comes, uh, there's very little that a lot of MPs can do. Now, turning to Lawrence McCauley and the picture, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with him promoting lobster as part of his job. I think that all makes sense. I do think that every time uh, a minister of the crown posts a picture on social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or or X, um, the choice of the picture and what you say with it, uh, it, it requires some care. Um, and I don't think that that standard of care was applied in this case. I think there was a way for him to to have a picture taken uh, that illustrated that he was helping promote the lobster trade that didn't make it look to doubtful or skeptical eyes as though he was enjoying uh, some sort of a sunny vacation. And uh, so I think that's where the uh, where the problem lay. And I think it it invited criticism, especially in the middle of February in Canada. Uh, but I don't think it was a more a serious uh, error than that. I do think the broader question of how ministers use social media to describe what they're doing with the images that they choose it is an ongoing problem, not just in, uh, for Canadian politicians, but for other politicians as well. There's this instinct to kind of post pictures in, in formal situations. Um, and I think that uh, it would probably be in their interest if politicians took a hard look at whether or not those pictures uh, tell a story that's useful for the politicians or simply kind of frustrate people or make people wonder if these people are living, you know, better lives and lives that are, that are, that don't involve the same standard of hard work, let's say, as, uh, as the average person does. Yeah. I think you're being, I, I think you're being generous. <laughs> you're, you're being generous. I think. Um, I, I, doing backflips to, uh, to try lobster. and give some, 
or no, to no. Uh, like I mean, listen, we remember what a glass of orange juice did for the Tories, and uh, you know, I know the situation is a little different, but you, these are the kind of things that stick in a mind, right? And if you're otherwise inclined to say these guys don't care about how they spend the public dime and they're living in the high off the hog on my money and blah blah blah. Um, you know, it all plays in, into that hand. Now, some of those people are, you're never going to turn them anyway because they're against. But the fact is, you, you just know you're going to see that picture again. It's going to be. If I didn't say clearly it was a bad picture, it was, it was a bad picture. I'm sorry if I. Oh, finally, you get to it. The fact is that it has <laughs> not the same impact on caucus morale and liberal morale as the holidays that the prime minister took in a swanky place. Uh, but it is in that same category. And I agree with Bruce that most members who are thinking of running again for re-election, government members, have not given up because if they were giving up, they would not run again. Uh, so they will do whatever they think that they can do to be reelected. But we've also seen governments that look like they were going down. And usually a government that looks like it's drowning is going to try to do something about it. Uh, and and try to show that it still has ambitions. So if you don't like the leader anymore, maybe you're going to give it that leader or that government credit for at least having ambitions that uh, you can identify to. Uh, Brian Mulroney was going down, and even as he was going down, he was doing the GST. He tried to do the Charlottetown Accord and fix the Constitution. He was working on NAFTA. Uh, and fighting uh, the liberals on NAFTA, these are big items for a government that has lost currency with the general public. And, and poll after poll would show that both Brian Mulroney and the conservatives were in deeper trouble, I would argue, than the liberals should be because they were losing their two pillars to new parties. That's a much more complicated uh, proposition than anything that's been happening to the liberals. Jean Chrétien knew, knew that he was gone in a year, and he used that year to introduce political financing. He used that year to say, I'm not going to take uh, Canada to, to, to Iraq with George W. Bush. He, he, he used the time that he had left to leave something for people to look back on and say that year was not a wasted year. He didn't spend the year uh, floating from place to place, uh, cutting ribbons. He actually put government plans. He signed on to Kyoto uh, over that last year. This government, is it's hard to find something that they are giving Canadians uh, a cause to look to and say, this is a really interesting thing that they're doing. They've been doing dental care, and now they may do something on pharmacare for, to perpetuate an arrangement that keeps them in government, as opposed to something that they really, really want to do. Their leg legislation or their moves over the past few months have involved going backwards on stuff. They carve out for home eating and uh, uh, and the, for the carbon tax. That's stepping back. There is also some stepping back on some of the regulations that uh, Minister Guilbeault was trying to put in place. The main piece of legislation the government desperately needs to get through over the next week is to back off on MAID and offering medically uh, medical assistance to people who want to die and who only suffer from uh, mental illnesses. So when you look at this and you think, this looks like a government that is in, in, in relative retreat on its own ambitions and is not, you know, is, is not giving anyone more reasons to say, wouldn't we be sorry if they didn't get a chance to finish this? Uh, because it doesn't look like they're in the process of doing anything that is particularly compelling uh, that voters would want to see true. So that does lead me to think that somewhere, somehow, there's been a, a, a big loss of drive for a government that is facing a tough election campaign and that likes to pretend that it wants to win it. Bruce. 
Yeah, I just wanted to jump in. I, I agree with uh, Chantal on the on the sense that the government has been a bit in retreat, bit on the back foot. Maybe I'm again being too kind, saying a bit. Um, it's been a bad uh, run for sure, and and by run I mean a lot of months now. Um, I did notice that the prime minister um, did a talk show in Alberta this week with Ryan Jesperson, who's a who's got a kind of a popular uh, conversational talk show. Anyway, the, the prime minister went to Alberta and he decided to do this. And the clips coming out of it, you know, show the, um, the, the, the kind of the dilemma I think that the liberals have, which is that the prime minister, when he's in a, a conversational mode, uh, he's lucid, he's smart, he knows the details of all of the issues that his government has been working on. He's got a case to make that, that people should, um, be more aware of and give some credit to the uh, the track record of his government, which I happen to think uh, in many respects has been a good one for the country. Um, but looking back at past accomplishments is never going to really uh, pay the dividends that politicians want it to. It's proven so often in the past, yet it, it's hard for incumbents not to want to reflexively do that. Why don't you remember what I did um, that was so meaningful to you at the moment that I did it? Um, it's just not a conversation that draws a crowd. Um, and so the prime minister seems uh, stuck in, in in either talking about past accomplishments or talking about what Pierre Polyev means to the country or kind of implying, sometimes saying that he's the only person who can beat Pierre Polyev. Well, I think the problem with those two propositions is that um, so far, Justin Trudeau criticizing Pierre Polyev has not really done anything to diminish Pierre Polyev's uh, public opinion numbers. Now, Mr. Polyev is not loved by Canadians, but his popularity has, has grown over time and the prime minister's has declined. Which brings me to the second proposition that the prime minister uh, seems to feel is the, is the main reason why he should stay, which is that only he can beat Pierre Polyev. And I just don't think there's there's evidence to support that. Thesis. Um, I think the prime minister knows he can be an effective campaigner, but sometimes you have to have an audience that really wants to hear what you have to say. And I know there's a tendency sometimes for them to brush that off, that people may be bored and they don't want to hear me, but I'm, I'm going to make these points and, and eventually people are going to pay attention, maybe closer to an election, people will be more dialed in. I think there's a very, very risky bet. Uh, I think it it, it is it, it is. It is hard to square with the evidence available so far, this idea that the prime minister is the only one who could beat Pierre Polyev and give liberals a chance at uh, at another term in office. I'll take this a step further. There was a time, possibly this time last year, where you could argue that the Justin Trudeau was the person who was the most likely to limit whatever damage comes the way of the Liberal Party in the next election which is not saying that he was the only person who could beat Pierre Poilier, but that anybody else would probably get a worse result for the Liberal Party than um, Justin Trudeau. I don't think that's true anymore. I think there has been a lot more wear and tear uh, on this prime minister accumulating over the past nine months uh, that is becoming increasingly impossible to fix. And I no longer think uh, that Justin Trudeau is the best possible leader in difficult circumstances to help the Liberals arrive at uh, a not too devastating finish uh, in the next general election. That's a shift. And I think that's a shift that you also find in the thinking of many Liberals who for a long, long time thought, well, you know, Justin Trudeau is better than any of the alternatives. A number of liberals have now moved on to there are alternatives that are not as bad as Justin Trudeau leading the party in the election. I'm not convinced that the prime minister understands that. The other issue I have is stoned. Clearly, central casting is uh, suggested to the prime minister that he should use more forceful vocabulary uh, when he talks about you know, uh, what happened with Bell Media and the layoffs, uh, he's pissed off, etc. I don't believe that works. It looks contrived. It also um, probably works for someone who is an opposition politician, but it doesn't do very much for people who are losing their jobs and uh, 
or for transgender kids uh, that the prime minister is saying that he's pissed off. Uh, it's It just sounds like we are slowly but surely getting closer to the um, schoolyard conversation uh, rather than a, a natural debate and, and statesmanship uh, in action. So, and, and he was, I heard some of his quotes, not in the interview that Bruce talks about, but some of his, his, his the clips that came out of his Alberta visit. And frankly, he was too hot for the good of his message. It just came, it, it just sounded more like, like a political tantrum uh, than a reasoned argument. So I guess go back to the drawing board, uh, central casting, and reflect on the fact that people like the prime minister to look competent, not excited. Okay, I want to um, take a quick break um, and then come back and, and talk about uh, the other side of this coin, and that's the Polyev uh, side, because I find I find what's happening on that front pretty interesting in itself. Um, and I want to try and get either one of you to, or both of you to explain how he's succeeding in, in what is a, a tricky political game. And I'll explain it, and we'll get to it um, right after this. Welcome back. You're listening to a Good Talk for this Friday. Chantal Bear, Bruce Anderson, Peter Mansbridge here. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Or you're watching us on our uh, YouTube channel. Wherever you're joining us, we're uh, happy to have you with us. Um, okay, here's what I find interesting. Um, uh, it's a tricky balance that any political party has to do, which is kind of protect what you've got, Keep saying things that your your base is is comfortable with, and yet at the same time, kind of explore the outer edges uh, of your support to try and bring in people from uh, from outside. So, in in other words, for the conservatives, for Polyev, he's protecting his his own base. He's trying to uh, assure that he doesn't lose stuff to the right of his base, uh, to the People's Party, while at the same time trying to ensure that those who are abandoning the Liberals or appear to be abandoning the Liberals don't get so scared of him that they'll move back to the Liberals. So that's a challenge, pretty straightforward. But I've, what I've noticed in the last, certainly in the last couple of weeks, that he doesn't seem to be worried about losing um, some of that newfound support that he might have in the middle on the fringes of the Liberal Party, that he's saying things that are uh, comfortable with his base and certainly comfortable to the right of his base, and yet he doesn't seem to be losing anyone, if the polls are accurate, on the edges. And we saw it again this week with his, uh, you know, his comments on uh, ID for uh, for porn sites uh, and, and and other issues. So how is he managing to walk that line and stay apparently comfortable with not only where he is, but what he's witnessing around him in terms of voter support? Um, Bruce, start us. Well, I think he starts with an analysis of the situation similar to the one that that we just gave, which is that um, against Justin Trudeau, he's going to continue to hold a certain measure of support that would otherwise normally go towards the Liberal Party simply because the, those voters are frustrated with what they see as the, the version of the Liberal Party on offer right now. Um, so I don't think he's too worried about uh, those uh, those votes drifting away as long as his rival is Justin Trudeau. Now, whether that turns out to be as safe a bet as he thinks that it is today um, I suppose for him, that's a problem for that's a future problem. Um, he does have to, as any conservative leader does, have to manage the different factions uh, that make up the conservative movement. And how he does that, I think, is is really um, what you're what you're driving at in terms of this conversation, Peter. Um, you know, my colleague Fred Delory, who you you guys both know. 
is is really interesting in in kind of describing what it is that's underneath the hood of the conservative movement today and how many different layers or or subdivisions there are of of uh, the conservative voter pool um and we've been around long enough to know that uh, Pierre Polyev isn't the first conservative leader who's had to figure out how to um tend to the various instincts of social conservatives of libertarian uh conservatives of fiscal conservatives um, and I think that what he's what Polyev has shown over time is that from time to time he will do certain things that make sure that those parts of his constituency um, that otherwise might uh, drift away hear something from him that resonates for them. So for social conservatives um, who might not hear as much about abortion, for example, as they want, hearing things about gender ID. Uh, might make them feel like, okay, he's still uh, in touch with the same value system as as we are. Now, as I'm describing that, um, I wouldn't want anybody to think that I think he made a good decision there or has taken a position that's anything other than dangerous for people in, in society. I, I, don't, I don't agree with his position on it. I think it was um, uh, disappointing that he took it. Um, but I think that's why he took it. Um, I think the position that he's taken on uh, ID for porn, the idea that um, the people who want to consume that online have to somehow show uh, who they are uh, to the providers of it. I think that's going to, that will play badly with the libertarian uh, part of uh, his coalition. Uh, but he's made that calculation that he wants to uh, send that message again, I think, to social conservatives that this is something that, you know, he's concerned about children consuming porn. I don't think either of those things rise anywhere close to the level of importance for most Canadians that uh, that this is what they're hoping for a change in government to bring. But I don't think that's what it was about. So uh, that's what I think he's doing. I think he knows what he's doing because he he does the math pretty well in terms of the politics. And I don't think he'll, I don't, I don't look at those two decisions and anticipate that he's going to keep on doing that. I think instead what he likes to do is this episodic um, base touching uh, with key ideas that resonate within certain subgroups of the conservative movement. I just think we should uh, mention that Fred Delory, who you mentioned to, uh, as part of your answer, ran the last conservative campaign. Um, right. So he comes at it from that uh, from that side. Uh, Chantal? Um, I, I think that, uh, I don't disagree with a lot of what Bruce said, but I think it uh, gives too much credit for to to planning on the part of Pierre Poiliev and not enough to uh, what happens in circumstances um, about this uh, porn site uh, ID issue. This revolves around a private mem uh, a Senate bill that is now in the House of Commons uh, and uh, that is supported by the NDP, the Bloc Québécois, and uh, the Conservatives, and basically uh, calls on Pornhub to check uh, to ensure that minors are not accessing the website. But the bill is silent on how you do that. I do not for a second believe that a conservative government would introduce a digital ID or force you to enter your passport number or any personal information to access Pornhub. And um, Mr. Poiliev even has his uh, shown support for the bill, has basically not come up with how do you ensure that kids who can do math uh, know better than to write their actual year of birth if they're not 18? I'm sure that uh, most math classes would lead you to know that it's better to just answer 1990 when you're asked your year of birth and then move on to the site. Uh, there have been musings about this uh, digital ID. My understanding is that uh, Mr. Poiliev himself has ruled out those mechanisms for obvious reasons. Uh, I don't think it's just libertarians who would have serious reservations about the notion that to access a porn site, you have to give whatever that porn site is some private information. Uh, and not know what happens to that information going forward, who it's sold to, who it's passed on to, etc. The other issue that came up this week was uh, transgender uh, people using um, women's washroom. And Mr. Poiliev sensed that uh, a, a woman's washroom should be reserved to people who are female at birth. 
Yeah, this isn't something that uh, Pierre Poilievre wanted to talk about. This is a question that came up over the course of a news conference uh, that he ended up answering. And interestingly enough, he also went out of his way to point out that all that being said, uh, and whatever his opinion is, this is not something that the federal government has any leverage over. No prime minister is going to shepherd the bill in the House of Commons about uh, who uses washrooms in public establishments where. That's way beyond the scope. Uh, you'd have to do it through the criminal code. It sounds very, uh, very strange idea. So up to a point, he is also answering questions that have ended up thrown his way by the initiatives of a number of conservative governments, but that when they have been tested, uh, and I'm going to use Quebec as an example, the um, Provincial Conservative Party, led by Éric Duhem, who has been uh, in the past close to Pierre Poilievre, was looking for an issue to kind of move on from the pandemic uh, and the, re the health uh, restrictions that allowed the Conservative Party in Quebec to, to get a boost in the polls, and decided to move on to uh, transgender uh, kids and this entire issue that is now part of, of the, the landscape in New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, Alberta, to name three provinces. Well, uh, since Mr. Poilievre ventured down that path, he had, uh, Mr. Poilievre, Mr. Duhem, he has become the least popular political figure in Quebec. There is a message there. There has been a test of this, and the results of the test is go down this road, at least in Quebec and probably in Ontario, NBC, and you are going to lose a lot more votes than you will win. So I believe that uh, Mr. Poilievre's brain trust do not want him to be embracing too much of that narrative. Uh, and that whenever it comes up, it's because someone is raising it at a news conference and he has to answer. Okay. Yeah, look, I, I agree with Chantal that these things weren't part of a planned agenda um, on the part of Mr. Polyev and that his uh, and his his strategists don't want this to be too big a part of his um, his pitch to Canadians. Um, but he is fairly adept at saying, I don't want to talk about something if he doesn't want to talk about it. And I do think that in this case, he knew that the positions that he took we're going to spark howls of outrage from parts of uh, the political landscape that he likes to spark outrage from because it tends to rally uh, people on the conservative side. Um, so I think I'm more, uh, um, I'm a little bit more in the world of yes, things happen, but um, he doesn't, you know, in in these particular instances, he saw some usefulness in taking the positions that he did. But I, I completely agree with Chantal on the likelihood that he would ever do anything if he was in office. Um, it's possible. But it, it, these ideas feel incredibly fraught. And the kinds of things that if governments are elected and start trying to do these, uh, they quickly find out just how difficult it is to um, to manage. So uh, not, not a great week for him and I, whether or not it was more he was kind of forced to address these issues or he had some instinct that he wanted to kind of resonate with uh, certain parts of his base um the fact that that it won't cause him too much trouble right now um uh, might not, might help him a little bit i think it goes back to what we were talking about before which is you know it's hard for the conservatives to lose support right now because people just aren't that interested in the liberals okay um a couple of important anniversaries coming up in the next few days. Uh, the first one's tomorrow. Uh, I want to talk about that for a second here. Um, and that anniversary is the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I appreciate they'd gone into Ukraine earlier in 2014 on, uh, on the Crimea front, but we're talking about the invasion of, uh, you know, Ukraine proper from the north by Russia. And... Um, a fight that was supposed to last a couple of days has lasted a couple of years, and there were ups and downs, and uh, things have not looked good for Ukraine lately, but the fight is still on, and most analysts say it's going to be on for a long time yet, um, which raises the issue of Canadian support. And it appeared that 
Canadians were drifting away from the idea of kind of full-throated support for Ukraine in terms of more armaments, more money, et cetera, et cetera, um, over the last little while, over the last few months. And uh, clearly, uh, the Conservatives uh, raising some caution about how far they were willing to go in supporting Ukraine. Bruce, you're just out of the field with new data on Canada and Ukraine. What's it telling us? Yeah, people can find this uh, survey. We posted it on National News Watch. It's, um, you know, it shows that most Canadians continue to believe that uh, without help from the West, that Putin would win that war. So to your point, Peter, I do agree that most people thought this was going to be very quick, that Russia was going to... uh, to have its way in uh, in Ukraine. And here we are a couple of years later, and that hasn't yet been the case. And, and so I think people are of the view, mostly, that uh, support by the West has been really quite helpful in resisting that Russian aggression. Um, but the other things that this poll showed, which I think are interesting to me, is that um, most Canadians also think that if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, it won't be the end of his ambitions, his, his territorial ambitions in, in Europe. Uh, and so they do see that there is a geopolitical risk that's bigger than the question that has been at the heart of this two-year conflict. And most Canadians also believe that Canada has to do what it can to support our allies in that situation. So for all of those people who have been of the view from the beginning that Ukraine deserved, uh, needed and deserved support by countries like Canada, that remains the majority consensus in Canada. The last thing I'll say, though, is that if there has been some slippage, um, you know, sometimes that happens because people are fatigued with it, because they see the cost of it, because they wonder whether or not it's going to work. And I don't doubt that there's probably a little bit of that, but this poll probably made me feel there was less of it than than um, might have been feared by those who who back Ukraine. Uh, But there is within the conservative voter pool a, a larger instinct Uh, to move away from this. It's still a majority of conservatives who say we've got to be there. 59%, though, isn't the same as 67% or 75% in case of NDP voters. Um, And it tells us something about this undercurrent of isolationism that we see in the United States Republican Party. It's there a little bit in the Canadian conservative movement as well. Um, And it, it probably accounts to some degree for the tension that existed within the Conservative Party around this Canada-U.S. Uh, Canada-Ukraine free trade agreement that we were all talking about last month. Any thoughts on this, uh, Chantal? Still, 59% of Conservatives support a policy driven by Justin Trudeau is quite a number uh, when you think of the government's situation by far. Yeah. And uh, uh, Léger uh, Paul showed much the same trends a uh, couple of days ago. When you look at those numbers, uh, by far the uh, Ukraine policy of the government is its most popular policy, the one that enjoys the most support. Uh, go down the list of, you know, you're not going to get 59% of conservatives supporting dental care, uh, child care, etc. So it is pretty striking. Uh, and it, it goes back to and I, yes, I understand that the MAGA-style conservatives, obviously the MAGA-style Canadians are to be found mostly in the Conservative Party and the People's Party. But it still goes back to the, the notion that we may have regime change, but in the end, our foreign policy doesn't change that much from government to government to government. Yes, there are differences on climate change. That's obvious. But if you if you think back, of that great campaign that Jean Chrétien had in 1993 when he was going to renegotiate NAFTA. Whenever now the Conservatives say we will renegotiate the Ukraine-Canada trade deal, I think back to, do you remember the renegotiation of NAFTA under Jean Chrétien? No, you don't, because they negotiated a side deal in the environment, and that was the renegotiation. So uh, we, we, we... emphasize wedge issues between parties. But when it comes to larger issues like foreign policy, I'm not convinced that there would be a dramatic change in the course of Canadian foreign policy under a, a conservative government based on you know, those numbers and that level of a consensus within the, the Canadian electorate. 
I think the other thing you, we have to keep in mind in terms of the Ukraine issue is what a political force Ukraine is in Canada because of the Ukrainian-Canadian um, population. Uh, much of it based in Western Canada. And the last thing the Conservatives need is to fiddle with that, even with the huge lead they have across uh, the West. They, they've got to be... I do think there is a, a kind of a growing challenge uh, for Western countries, which will be made worse if Donald Trump wins uh, election, which is about how much money is being spent on uh, on military armament. Uh, that pressure has been there for some time, but I think the comments that Trump has made um, and the fact of Russia's aggression combined to create a situation where the conservative leader is definitely saying more aggressive things about growing the defense budget than have been said in a long time. Um, and I think it, it, it's hard not to see a situation where that sense of um, our need to uh, do more to equip ourselves becomes a little bit more pressing, at least at the geopolitical leadership level. I'm not saying that it will become a thing where the public opinion in Canada tilts more in that direction. I don't think that will be the case. Uh, I think people still have a certain, um, if we have to, kind of grudging feeling about spending on a lot of uh, large ticket defense items. Um, but I, I think we're headed for a conversation where uh, the expectation of Western countries is that that spending will rise, and that will be particularly true uh, for Canada if Donald Trump wins, and maybe even if he doesn't. Um, and so I think that might become a point of differentiation at some moment in the future between the Conservatives and, and others on the political spectrum. Okay, we're going to take our final break. Uh, we come back, we talk about the other anniversary I was mentioning. That's coming right up. Welcome back. Uh, last block, last segment of uh, Good Talk for this week. Chantal Bear, Bruce Anderson, Peter Mansbridge here. Um, talk about a second anniversary, and it's next week. I think it's next Wednesday. Will be the uh, 40th anniversary of the famous Walk in the Snow by Pierre Trudeau. Oh, Jesus, I feel old all of a sudden. Yeah. 40th, eh? No kidding. 1984. Oh, is that why one of my sons is turning 41 today? Oh, yes, I guess so. <laughs> I thought he was turning 30. <laughs> but he was in the car in that snowstorm when we heard that on the radio. So Right. Well, I don't, know whether there's, I, I don't know whether there's enough snow in many parts of the country to take that walk in the snow this year. But some, some had theorized, well, you know, Justin Trudeau's going to wait till the anniversary of his father's walk in the snow and deciding to quit and he'll do the same thing on the same day. I don't think anybody thinks that anymore. Uh, mind you, there are those who argue, well, he just wants to wait until nobody's thinking it before he does it and then surprise everybody like his father did. I remember we'd all become sort of resigned to the fact that he, well, he's probably going to stick around. Remember he was doing the world peace tour and he was traveling around the world uh, trying to create a new uh, era of peace. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, if it's uh, if it's not on his mind for next week, uh, I assume then the next big moment is the budget, the pharmacare, the this, the that, if he's looking for a legacy of some kind um, before he exits the uh, the picture, if, in fact, he's even thinking of that. Anybody so a lot of people want to do the thinking for him. You keep <laughs> running into people who are. And so let us engage in this thinking for him uh, business since it's now a sport, a February sport, apparently. Um, I I don't believe that the, the prime minister is going to take a walk in the non-existent snow uh, or will look for it uh, maybe in Atlantic Canada to uh, quit next week. I do believe that if he were to leave, the next window and possibly the last window would be once he knows that the government is safe after the budget, i.e. that the government won't fall over the budget. 
that it has sufficient opposition support to 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 pass this budget which is basically may and in may you quit and you could have a replacement in place in the calendar by the time the house comes back in mid-september but once you're beyond that you are really uh, leaving it considering that the government is a minority government you're really leaving it to the very last minute i don't know what justin trudeau is thinking i there are people who have advised him um, about the wisdom of leaving, job well done, three election victories, let's move on. Uh, there may be others, but I understand a diminishing crowd that is staying, saying, please stay put. But if he doesn't go next week, basically, I would look to me as the last possible doable window to uh, decide to leave and have the party select a successor in early September. Bruce. Yeah, I think that the, what the prime minister is saying, which is insisting that he's going to be there in the next election, is the thing that you say if you really need to keep and want to keep your options open. I, I don't think that it should be read as an absolute guarantee that that is his final decision on that. It may well be that that is, pardon me, his instinct, that he really does believe that he can mount a successful campaign for re-election. Or it may just be that he's trying, as, uh, as Chantal said, to create a a space in which the decision that he makes, he can explain rationally and with some pride uh, to people. As he says, um, I've done a lot of uh, hard work that I hope people appreciate, but now it's time for me to move on and, and to make some room for a successor. I tend to think, because I think he's quite a rational person, that whether he already knows that that's how this story is going to end for him politically or whether he'll come to that at some point in the future. I think he probably will come to that because I don't think that um, anybody with his wisdom um, really thinks that it's easy to overcome the kind of public opinion dynamic that exists right now, which is to say still a lot of progressive voters supporting a lot of the pieces of the agenda that he's put in place, but just not really wanting to mark an X beside a liberal ballot um, with him as the as the leader of the party right now, and to recognize that that's not a you know personal it is a very very hard thing to do for politicians. It feels very personal. I don't know how many people we've all met in politics over the years who talk about the fact that people cast a ballot in support of them. Now they're all local MPs without it sounding like it's something very personal. And when they get beaten. Uh, it's taken very personally. So I think he's probably going to arrive at a point where he he looks at the situation and makes a rational conclusion about whether or not he's really seeing the evidence that he can be competitive in the next election. Uh, but it could be completely wrong because as Chantal says, there are uh, there are some people who, who continue to believe that that's the most logical and most likely scenario. I just don't happen to be one of them. Um, I don't think it'll be next week though that 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 question is answered i think that chantelle's time frame seems like the more logical one to me who um who's closest to him uh, if there's anybody that he'd be sharing his thoughts with who, who uh, might, if there's anybody be? who maybe could tell him that it's time to go and he might listen because many who are close to him my understanding is have conveyed that message and not as brutal a way maybe as I'm putting it now, but the person who who would probably have a decisive voice on this is this chief of staff, Katie Telford. Um, if, I suspect if she went and said, boss, we're done, we've done good, but we are done, um, that would have more impact than all of the... Uh, uh, dime a dozen analysis, including ours, uh, will have. I would also add one caveat to what uh, Bruce has said about Justin Trudeau's wisdom and his thinking. This is a prime minister and a politician who is never lost. And that also has impact on your psyche. That you've always won. Everyone else Brian Mulroney, Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, Stephen Pierre Harper, Trudeau. they'd known, they knew defeat. Yeah, Pierre, Pierre Trudeau. Trudeau also. Yeah. 
had lost. Justin Trudeau is never lost. Just because he's never lost doesn't mean he can't lose, but it certainly makes you more certain that you're seeing something in the mirror that others are failing to see, but that will become apparent uh, than if you've had, you know, your hits and misses and uh, those misses uh, cost you. That's not happened so far. So yeah, I think that's a good point. And I agree that uh, the Ms. Telford is the person who could have the conversation with him. And uh, there's a part of me that thinks that um, this is just a normal kind of unpleasant period that incumbent governments go through before they end up figuring out what needs to happen. Um, and uh, in that sense, it, you know, I, I politics, I think I've sort of said this in the past, can either look like a game, a, a business of math or, or something that has more to do with chemistry. And I think it's uh, more often than not, it's chemistry. And I think it what we're dealing with right now is a situation that's really quite uncomfortable for the liberals. Um, and the, the more that discomfort grows, uh, the more likely it is that those conversations will happen and those choices will be made. And Chantel may be exactly right that somebody who's never lost, who thinks of themselves as uh, the most effective politician in the political landscape may not come to that conclusion that they're going to lose at next election. Um, I guess we'll see. We will see. And I, you know, I think it's interesting the way uh, the picture that Chantel paints that the, the next kind of month to two months is the window, perhaps the last window, if he's going to pull a plug um, and give his party some chance to reorganize and prepare for the it's next. It's hard month. to say, though. I Don't don't we, <laughs> we keep hearing in the U.S. that people think, oh, well, Biden could still step away you know, just around July. I don't believe that. I don't think that's plausible. But um, people who want change to happen, who believe their in, their service, their their uh, their needs will be better served by change, they probably won't stop thinking that in May, even if Justin Trudeau doesn't leave. Let okay. me put it that way. I All think right. that they'll continue yeah, well, and even more fervently believe that. All right, we've but right, wishful right, thinking, uh, you know, is a currency that is always in um, fairly widespread in politics. Uh, that's why people run, and that's why they run for their leadership. All right, going to leave it at that. Good conversation as always. Uh, look forward to Chantel's away for the next couple of weeks. Uh, Susan Delacorte will be sitting in for Chantel next week. Um, we're looking forward to hearing from her, and we're wishing Chantel the best on her uh, her midwinter break. Uh, Bruce, Chantel, thanks again. We'll talk to you again when we talk to you again. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks, thanks for guys. listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. See you, Bob. <laughs>